without no further ado, I'd like to welcome Eric Miller, known as East Smooth. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction, man. You're getting really good at this. <laughs> I think they better cut me a check now, E. <laughs> yeah, I think so, man. I think, you know, you know get Red Bull or somebody on the, on the table. Somebody's got to get to me. But you know what? We're getting sponsors here. People are coming and, and handing stuff off. And I mean, look, in my room, my studio, which I should be making music, we're, right. cut, we're cutting now. I'm cutting interviews. But you know what? God bless us that we can do this even though we're in a pandemic. First of all, where are you right now? You're in Chicago? I am in Chicago at my house. Okay. Um, and before we get started, because then everybody wants to know the first question I ask always, you know, where he comes from. He had mentioned pre to the show that we just lost another Chicago legend. I'll let Eric tell you who he is and we'll pay some homage in a moment of silence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and it's, uh, it's a she. Her name is uh, Angie Stone, DJ Angie Stone. And, you know, she's just another one of us Chicago soldiers, you know, moving that house movement. Um, she was here and then I think she relocated to Atlanta. Um, I'm not sure the details of her transition, um, but just heard about it fresh off the press and wanted to acknowledge, you know, just, you know, Chicago's in the house. All right, Chicago's representing. I know a lot of other people starting to listen to the show probably right now because it is. Let's also thank all the veterans around the world here and around the world defending us at all times. And we don't think they're suckers. No, that or, no nor losers. Nor losers, those that know how we feel about that. Because I've always loved the military. I had my two grandfathers. One was in the Asian theater and one was in the European theater in World War II. My uncle was Vietnam. So, yes, yes, I have always taken my hat off to any soldier for Absolutely. defending our countries. Service is important. Okay, E, here we go, Pops. First question, and then I'll let you take it from there. We know you got a mom and a dad. Uh -huh. E Smooth finds music when he's a young kid. Where does that begin for you and take us on that journey? Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> what a great question, actually. Um, it, it, I think it starts initially with my dad. My dad had an incredibly eclectic, has, still has an incredibly eclectic, uh, record collection. Um, so I was exposed to jazz. I was exposed to soul, um, you know, a little disco. Um, so all over the place from Barbara Streisand to Lou Rawls to, um, to, Kenny, um, you know, when the whole, why did I lose his last name just now? <laughs> Frank Sinatra, you go down the list, go down the list. Um, just incredible collection um, from that. And I think that what really stuck with me was a lot of the Philly soul stuff, a lot of the Gamble and Huff, um, that green label with that P up on, on, on there. I remember that. Um, and then I move on to my mom who um, has always encouraged me to dream, that always encouraged me um, to see the optimism in things and, and really, um, had my mind open. I think that combination, um, just put me in a place. And like, I can remember my first 12 inch was, um, uh, Peter, Peter helped me out. Burning love breakdown. Oh, Peter Brown. Yeah, Peter Brown. <laughs> and let's, 
this 53-year-old mind, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> it comes in and then it leaves before it can come out of my mouth. <laughs> but yeah, Peter Brown um, was one of my first 12 inches. Um, my collection of 45s range from, you know, Riding High, um, Faso to um, Earth, Wind & Fire. You go down the list, man. Um, and, and in that, I discovered Quincy Jones as well as a young kid and didn't know um, listening to his music, how he was pouring into me song structure and arrangement and um, the musicianship. Um, so I was very aware of like the Brothers Johnson at an early age, that sort of thing. So long before I knew what production was, I was aware of production. Um, so so that, that that is definitely the history. And, you know, my dad's work ethic, um, I was able to apply that and, and put that into practice as well. So before I go into the next question, let me do a commercial break. Prevision for us who are forgetful in our brain so that we be <laughs> take your prevision. So this way your brain is fully on fire. I mean, I had to oh tell you some, somebody else the other day. I see people. Meanwhile, I can remember something that happened at, say, the front of the Paradise Garage, but I'm looking at someone I can't remember their name. It's <laughs> and it's, it, you know what, too? It's embarrassing because I've actually had that happen to people who I was close to. Like one day we were at a, a festival thing and Braxton Holmes, I know you know that name, right? Oh, yeah. So I've known Braxton for you. I went to high school with Braxton. Braxton worked for me at one time. You know what I mean? We have a, a huge relationship. And I went to go introduce them and was like, what's your name? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, like, I know he thought I was on drugs. He's like, he's got to be on drugs. He's smoking something. He's smoking something. <laughs> so you're a disco R&B, Barbara Streisand, jazz man, all the above, all the music that basically sets you to go R&B. Yes. What's that first record that starts to make you think, or where were you where you were in a position where you start saying to yourself, I'm going to start producing, or I'm going to try this music thing? What when? What's that all about? Oh, my God. Well, okay, so the first thing, um, I think that I was very aware of remixers early in my career. So like the Justin Strauss, um, you know, those type of guys, um, Bruce, um, you know, even Larry LeVan. I was very aware of their stamps on music. Um, so I start there in the sense of knowing that because you got to be aware it's possible first. Right. And then and then from there, obviously, the rush of Chicago records from, uh, you know, Jesse, starting with Jesse Saunders, starting with Jamie Principal, um, when those records started becoming in play, and then the people around me started making records. Hurley makes a record, Chip E makes a record, um, Mark Belcher and uh, Kelly, MK2, make a record. Also, all of that rush of records just showed you it was possible, and, you know, that. I don't think we could have gotten there collectively as a group without those first pioneers making those records and showing, oh, if you could do it, then, I mean, no disrespect to them, but in ultimate respect to them, seeing them make the record, play the record at the party, and then seeing what they used, what they did it with in that process, and then connecting the dots that I can do it too. You know, they always talk about Jesse Saunders was like the first guy to break this house track out. 
Is that true? Okay, so so you know, tell us yours. Tell us your story on it. When I say when I say first, Jesse Jesse was definitely um, ground zero. So I would say that from from a genre standpoint, from a culture standpoint, there's a slew of people and events and things that happened that brought it to that point. And I and I think that he will agree with that. But he was the first to actually press a record, put it out put it in the store, the whole thing. So that is ground zero. But you cannot discount um, Jamie Principal as even the catalyst for all of that, that being one of the first um, purely Chicago house um, recordings. Can, can't say record, because it wasn't on the record. <laughs> right. But recording in the sense that everybody- But when you say recordings, you know, nowadays we got wave files and stuff. What do you mean in the sense of the viewer sitting home, a recording, and these records weren't available? What was going on at that time in Chicago? So my understanding is, and we can get confirmation from people, you know, because Frankie's not here. So that's the first thing, right? Um, and I also think that with all due respect to Frankie Knuckles, there was some bias that was not even of his creation. I think that the media took a little bit of the story and ran with it. So, um, but, you know, but for Jamie and Frankie, Jamie, good luck trying to talk to him. He's on tour with the gorillas or something. He, <laughs> he's off in a castle somewhere. <laughs> um, but in terms of that recording, Craig Loftus, Greg Gray, some of those people that were involved in the, the power plant at the time where the, that record was made. So that's another misnomer. That record was not played at the warehouse. It was not it, this. This record came after the warehouse. Or song. Are we talking about "Baby Wants to Ride"? No, we're talking um, "Your Love." So your love was not made at the warehouse. It, and there's now a lot of people say that they it said was it was made at the power plant. At the power plant. Yes. Recorded at the power plant. So, so that was recorded to real. And those that were privy to that type of thing had a reel of it, a reel to reel, two inch, you know, not two inch, um, quarter inch reel um, that they would play. The rest of us <laughs> were playing it off a cassette. And I mean, everybody from just, you know, somebody in high school that had the cassette somehow got wind of it to all of us, you know, um, DJ soldiers, if I would say, you know, that on the street, we're playing it off a cassette. You know, and 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 various different versions of quality as well. <laughs> with you mean with you mean with the additional hiss factor. <laughs> this made those hi hats nice and mushy. You know what I mean? The, and, uh, and vocals are like this. Did you hear that track? That track's hot. And it, I'm not sure if it, I always thought this was Prince in the background, which gives it a little bit of a timestamp. Um, but in the background, faintly, you can hear this this screen. So I'm not sure if it's a Prince screen or if it is um, tape bleed from Prince being having recorded on the other side. But so some of those tapes have that in it, you know, which is crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But that's 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 the energy. See, that's the way I wish I could give you this feeling. I wish I could give you this feeling. That is the energy of 
of Chicago house culture at that time, circa 1982, 83, um, before the first actual record appeared. Now, paint us the picture. What was some of the music that was being played along with these tracks that were being built? What was some of the big records at the time? Oh, my God. So uh, you would have to give me a year because it is definitely based on that. Um, well, let's it, say the years of 82 before, right before house really became so-called house music. Okay. So, so, so let me take you through a quick transition. And, um, Wayne Williams, one of our pioneer, pioneers, Wayne Williams from Chosen Few, will always jump in and correct me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure somehow he'll get wind of this and then give me an earful, right? My understanding is um, before I came into the scene, Wayne was discovering disco, underground disco, um, black danceable music that was made um, and played mostly in gay clubs while the mainstream DJs were playing funk and that sort of thing. Wayne was discovering in the gay clubs. He's not gay. He just went there for the music. I just want to say that for the record, not, not to offend anybody, right? Um, that he was discovering that music um, through Ron Hardy um, and other DJs at the, the gay clubs at the time, right? From there, um, Chicago transitioned into, or a, a part of Chicago transitioned into punk music, right? So that's the B-52s, Rock Lobsters, that's Gary Newman Cars, that's um, uh, the Flirts, uh, Calling All Boys, uh, Turning Japanese, all of these records, right? And these records were going crazy in the teen parties, especially the elite preppy teen parties that were happening in Chicago. Um, there was a DJ named Herb Kent that had a, a radio show on 80 AM radio um and he would play these records and the kids would lose their minds and then an uh advertiser on that show was a record store called imports etc and imports um later plays a huge part in chicago house music but in that inception they were a record pool that also sold records so you would have to go into this garage and ask for the records you want, and then they would go get it like how, you remember how record pools were back in the day. The, the records would be in bins and the, you know, you'd get serviced, so to speak. Well, you could also buy records there. Um, so it was a very specialist record buying experience. Um, so that was a sponsor for the show. So Martin Circus, those type of records, we were playing Charlie Cimbello, Sing, Sing, Sing. Um, those records were played on the show and made popular through this show. From there, so so I'm 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 at 1980 now, right? From there, 1981, um, the Hot Mix Five appeared on WBMX, and that really opened the city up in terms of club music. Um, so a lot of the records that um, were probably popular at the Paradise Garage that um, were being played on BLS and that sort of thing. So if you take uh, one of my favorites is uh, Vicky D, this beat is mine, um, Happy Days, North End, um, T Train, of course. Um, those records, those type of records, a lot of South Soul, a lot of uh, Prelude, a lot of West End, a lot, a lot of West End. Um, those records were popular and being played at um, what we call the parties. Um, and those parties were DJed by um, mainly the chosen few, 
um, as a start. So that was Wayne Williams and Alan King um, and Tony Hatchett. Um, and then later on, Andre Hatchett um, and, and Jesse Saunders, which, which now you see how the correlation between started with Wayne with the disco, then moved through the hurricane and then Jesse and Wayne and the chosen few um, doing these parties. And, and here's what is a huge, huge difference between I think New York, um, London and, and, and some of the places around the world is when you guys talk about um, back in the day, you talk about clubs. So when you name some of the clubs like um, Paradise Garage, like Better Days, like all of these are adult clubs, 21 and older clubs, right? Yeah. Our reference is from a team party standpoint. So college age to, to older high school students are having these massive parties and recreating a club experience, but without the alcohol and without the 21 and older thing. So it, it, I think it makes our story just slightly more unique in that way. Um, in, in the passion for the music, when you think about it as an adult, you can be very passionate about the music, but you still got a car note, so you got a house note, you got kids, you got things you got to deal with, right? For us, we had a very free um, appreciation for the music because we were, we were um, learning and, and being exposed to this music as kids. So that was our end all be all. That's all I thought about. That's all I could, you know, that's it. <laughs> I didn't want to think about school. I didn't want to think about, I barely thought about girls. All I could think about was his music. You know what I mean? Um, so from that standpoint, you have to appreciate that as the catalyst, right? So 81, Hot Mix 5 comes on um, and Farley Keith was a huge, huge, huge influence for us. Um, he was the sole black uh, member of the Hot Mix Five, which would make, was made up of um, Farley, uh, Ralphie Rosario, uh, Mickey Oliver, um, Kenny Jason, who am I missing? Um, and Scott Smoking Sales. Um, so their range of playing this music was, was across that range. But here's what's unique. Farley was the DJ for that huge team population, that especially the Southside population. Um, that they were, they were the. Um, I mean, he was the the representative from that. The other guys were playing for the adult clubs around the city, so like Janelle's and whatever other clubs. I don't know about Charlie Club, whatever. Um, the adult clubs. So they're they they were playing more records like. Um, Lime, Angel Eyes, and um, uh, I'm going to think of some of the other examples. Just more of the commercial end, you know, the harder they fall, the harder right. they fall, the Donnie harder Calvin, they fall. Donnie Calvin, Arthur Baker, all that yeah. stuff, right? All that stuff. And I'm not saying that Farley didn't play that type of stuff, but he played a little bit more soulful version of it, a little more funkier version of that that, that playlist, if you will. Um, so some of those records would touch him, some of them wouldn't. But around that time, so we were getting um, Dirty Talk. Um, we were getting uh, Yaz, Yazoo Situation, um, just all of those records, along with the Italian imports like Problems Do More and, and, and Not Love, Trilogy, Not Love, that sort of thing. So that was the spectrum of, of records, right? 
And then during that time, also, you had the Frankie influence, the warehouse, right? So, and this is where, you know, I would love to debate um, in terms of, of influence with the, with, in terms of influence on the scene. Um, Frankie's Club, the warehouse, from what I understand, hold, held 300 people, right? And it was once a week. And no, nah, it was a great party from what I understand. I was not old enough to, to attend it. Um, maybe could have gotten in, but didn't have much interest in it, right? But it was a great party, right? From what I understand. Amazing sound system, the whole thing. But it was still 300 people. So if you could think of having a residency of 300 people, maybe those people are changing in and out and such, but your reach isn't that far. You know what I mean? Um, so against the reach of hundreds of thousands, millions of listeners on a radio station. Um, so Frankie had a massive influence with those 300 people in the sense that if Frankie was playing it, it would trickle down to, it would trickle to Farley and then it would trickle to us as the street DJs that were doing the different house parties um, and school parties around the city. Um, so different records like Walk the Night for, is a perfect example. Walk the Night, huge underground um, gay disco record, right? Um, massive, huge record, right? But right. How would we have discovered that? So that's that. That's to me. It would come from Frankie to imports, and then the imports. Then it would be disseminated through all of us. Same as the way Larry Levan would play a record at the garage. Everybody would go crazy then when he was playing it. Yeah, but, but, but the garage held how many people were at the garage? About Ooh, a no, almost two. You can almost eighteen hundred on that dance floor. See that's what I'm saying. That's a huge difference. Eighteen hundred, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right? Eighteen hundred versus three hundred. You know what I mean? Eighteen hundred with Frankie Cock Crocker there in the booth, hearing what he's playing, and then taking it to the airwaves. And right? then hearing the roar and the gusto of the people going nuts. You're like, this is Absolutely. a microcosm. Absolutely. So, so that's what I mean by, in a way, Frankie's influence definitely was exaggerated, but in a way, still huge because he was able to influence with a lot less leverage. You well, know what I mean? You always hear everyone talk about Ron Hardy, how he was beating that box down. Oh my God. So, so here's the other part, right? So in 82, I believe Ron Hardy was not here. I believe he was in LA is from what I understand. Um, so I would say about 83 is when the box opened up. Um, and it was um, a revamp of another club called the, the R2 Underground. When Ronnie, when Ronnie came on the scene, oh my God, how he changed things. So, so Chicago was a trick city, turntablist, right? So like Steve Hurley, right? When Steve Hurley came on the scene, part of how he came on the scene was he won a DJ battle doing all of these amazing tricks that he would seem like he just, you know, brought them off the, you know, top of his head, but he had been practicing for hours and hours and hours in his basement. And he was fluid like that, that it represented those hours of practicing. So we all, we all were doing tricks. We all were scratching. Uh, we all doing, you know, the beat juggling, two beats, one beat, you know, repeat, hot shot, hot shot, hot shot, 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 hot. You know what I mean? That was, you know, how we were getting down. And if you were DJing at that time, that's how you 
you did it. Ronnie came on the scene, and all of a sudden, tricks went away. And it was about programming. It was about um, working the EQ. It was about creating uh, emotion through the music. Um, all of a sudden, people started playing the music faster because Ronnie played it faster. So the crowds were used to hearing it. At, well, I shouldn't say the crowds because, once again, Music Box, another small place. But that influence was huge. So it changed the way that you DJ, changed the way that a lot of, lot of DJs play. So you're telling me that because he played more aggressively and progressive and people like who would go and visit him are the DJs. That's all you need is to see that they want to, you know, take that art form and take it to their own spot. And that's yeah. how that's how the curse, as I call it, begins across the, across the city. Well, I think I think that is crowd influence, too. I think that those those trendsetters, those um, tastemakers that are going to the box, you know, um, they 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 want to hear it that way, you know. They want to be beat down, you know what I mean. So beat they, that bitch. <laughs> yeah, it, it forces you to it forces you as a DJ to conform a little bit, you know. Uh, and, and to be honest, Ronnie was not a super technical DJ. If you listen to some of his tapes back in the day, you know he he's all over the place. He he playing how he want to play, you know what I mean. And in the context of the music box, you got a small space, you got a massive system. Is completely dark, whatever. That stuff worked, 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 worked. You know what I mean? And you of course, that. also the hallucinogens that are floating around the room help make everything feel better. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I want to say that I think that, that is the minority of the experience. I think that that I, I can't speak for other clubs, but I think in that case, you know, it, it's this kind of uh, connotation that because it was available, everybody was doing it. And I don't believe everybody was doing it. I mean, again, you gotta remember our crowd, most of the crowd was between the ages of 14 and 18. Right. With some, with some sprinkles of 20, you know what I mean? Well, that's, so, our, that's our age group. That was our age group that are alive today to talk about it. If you think yes. about it, we're all from the same age group. That, that well, well, no, I, I, no, I take that. No, I, I don't necessarily consider that because when I'm speaking to what I call my peers, when I'm speaking to a hippie Torales. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's older than us. Yeah, of course. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 when you think about that, when you think about what you just talked about with the with the garage experience, you know, that was the 21 and older crowd. And I don't know Dude, how many those people. Those guys had 10 and 15 years on us. Easy yeah. some of those guys. So, so that's, what I'm, that's, yeah, that's what I mean by in terms of our Chicago experience was we were sophisticated, but we still kids. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there were people doing acid. There were people smoking weed. There were people, you know, that, that had alcohol. But I would say the majority, they were just in there on the music, man. That, that purity of passion, I think, is unique to Chicago. That is what makes the difference. So now that you're a young kid and you're experiencing hearing on the radio, going to these teen parties and stuff, what are you doing at home? You're beating, you, are you practicing? Are you preparing? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm pause button mixing. And then I'm a working DJ at the time. So I, I started DJing at, I want to say, 13 by the time I was 15, I was a working DJ, literally, because there were all these parties. Because here would be the hierarchy. There were um, 
group parties that were given, right, by team promoters, right? So, and that was like the Sours and the Penthouse and the Loft back in the day and all these places where they would just rent a space, Blue Gargoyle, you go down the list. Any place that an adult would let us rent a space, we would rent a space. And then as a result, there would be anywhere between 300 to 1,000 to 1,500 kids in this place. You know what I mean? The playground was a kid's disco, but it wasn't like kitty disco with kitty cocktails. It was a full-on paradise garage type experience for kids, for teenagers, for high school kids, you know? So um, as a result- Could you imagine that doing that now? It would, they, they shut that shit down oh immediately. Oh my God, you know, uh, my, my daughter is, my, my oldest daughter is very eclectic and she reminds me of that scene so much just i think the kids now are just so open-minded so i you know see that in her right and i want her to get this music and say look you can be the catalyst you can bring all of them from all of that trap rap and all of that craziness to our stuff but i realized their trap and all of that stuff is our version of underground you know what i mean it's their version of our underground right so i just want them to, I, I would love to be the, the adults of to finance that and get the insurance and all that stuff. <laughs> it ain't no kids around that want to do that, man. You know? That's so sad, I know. You know? But but as a result of all of that energy, there were parties at different schools. People would have house parties. And when I say house, I mean literally their house. They would have a party in their basement. So there was a huge demand. And that that's something that is rarely talked about is, Chicago between the years of 1981 to 85 and even maybe 87. I was probably I was off at college then, so I can't speak as much during that time. But um, it's definitely between 81 and 85. There were so many house parties that come the weekend. It would be like where the party's at this weekend. And it'd right. be like 87th and this and 79th and this and 63rd and this and um 72nd all over the place all over the place all over the city so what would happen is you would have what you would call your first tier djs and that would be the farley keith and the um wayne williams and and and, and those guys right and they would do the the larger larger tier parties and then there would be like a tier two club that i i, I feel like i was in the tier two club and then there was a tier three and a tier four. You know what I mean? Of all of these um, teenage DJs playing the same music, some of us on 1200, some of us on a B, you know, a belt driven turntable, you know, different various sound systems, what have you. Um, just an army of DJs. And we were all playing the same music. And guess what's great? I wish this was, as a label owner, I wish this was the case, right? Everybody had to have two copies, two copies. So when you went and purchased uh, the Jammers Be, Be Mine Tonight on South Soul, you had to have two copies. When you went and purchased um, Colonel Abrams' Music is the Answer, you had to have two copies. Why? Why did you have to have two copies? Tell everybody. Because we were a trick city. So you had to be able to start the record over and over again. You had to be able to cut to the dub section of, you know, David Joseph, you can't hide and go to that and then go back to the vocal. You had to be able to do triples with it. You had to have two copies. So those labels were selling twice as much music, at least in <laughs> Chicago. 
It's true because you had yeah. to have sub version to play back to the main version. Work Absolutely. the hell out and, and work to make the crowd go crazy, right? Yeah, and, and some of those records, um, you know, again, as, as us also following our our pioneers, following our our icons, you would hear an icon like Pearly. Pearly was good for this, right? Pearly would play a record in a way where he only played the three, two or three breaks in that record that were amazing, right? In a way that made you go buy the record and you put the record on, you're like, this record sucks. It's just these two bars that he was moving back and forth, you know, and probably they were, they were what I call pool records, pool records, records you get from the pool that you play early until the crowd really gets there so you can play all your peak hour stuff. So he would make that that average record sound incredible. And then you go buy it. And now you gotta have two copies so you could just play those two parts. You know what I mean? So that was that was the culture um during that time. Just crazy. Okay, now moving forward, let's get to the Frank Rodrigo era and I and all that good stuff when you became e, Eric, Eric becomes E Smooth. The, producer remixer what's you the know, first record what's where's it begin for you so i think it begins for me so so just a quick thing is um originally i thought i was trying to be a radio producer so i went to college um and took classes as a radio producer found out that wait radio production that's not what i'm trying to do <laughs> and figured out record production was actually what i was trying to do and I did some early records. I went more of an engineer path, sound engineer path. So that's where I took my classes at and, you know, at Columbia and the whole thing um, and really learned the, you know, thing about signal path and gain structure and all, all those boring things that nobody wants to talk about, right? Um, but that was my background as a sound engineer. And through that, um, I did sessions with Candy J. I don't know if you remember Candy J. Um, you asking me if I remember Candy J? Yes, I, I'm putting you on the spot. Do you remember Candy J? <laughs> of course, I remember Candy J. I was like, yeah, the crowd trump, the people going, yeah, we remember Candy J. All right, Sweet yeah. Pea Pauline, right? So Sweet Candy Pauline. J was. Pauline. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Candy J was one of the first to, to allow me to work in the studio and actually pay me, which was, was very cool. Um, that, and I think I did. Um, All right, wait, 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 before you go any further. The first initial setup, what were you working on during that so, time? Andy J so, said, paint yeah, that for so everybody. So we were on two inch. We were on two inch, um, two inch uh, tape and drum machine. So 909, 707, 808, 727, that sort of thing. Um, keyboards, um, sequencing. I think I was on a Yamaha QX21 was my first sequencer. It, it had like two channels and <laughs> hard to program the whole thing. Um, Alesis was out during that time. Alesis drum machines were out during that time. So, you know, a variety of things. And this was, I think, pre-MPC. So if you can think about that time, it was a short period of time before the MPC was available um, that people were working. Um, we were syncing the tape with with FSK. We weren't even using Sempty. Um and, and from there, sorry, phone is going crazy. <laughs> um, so hang on, let me tell you about what FSK Tone is. You know, that was a thing created by J.L. Cooper. Okay. 
Yeah. And then what it was is you had it sent a, a signal of, of noise on a tape track. Okay. And then what would happen is you'd have a, a roll off start time. You hit play on the machine. So you'd have to give it enough time for all the MIDI to catch up. It was an interesting FSK tone was not as great as which later came Sempy, but yes. it is what it is for the time we all made it work. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, we definitely made it work. And, you know, by hook or crook, we made it work. We all made it work. Yeah, it, it, was, it was definitely not the most refined technology. Or reliable. Yes. So, you had, so what were you mixing on a board or were you mixing yeah, on? So, so we were in the studio. We were mixing on a, on, on a board. Um, there were a number of studios in Chicago um, at various price levels. Um, so, you know, you could be recording at the $150 an hour level or the $40 an hour level in the, in the dark of the night. <laughs> in between um, session. Yes, absolutely. We were doing a lot of those, you know, late night recordings where they would, you know, $40 an hour. Um, so that, I, I did that. I think I did um, the Chicago bus stop uh, record with uh, Hudson Baldry, whose brother was a huge um, sound system guy in Chicago. Uh, named Frenchie. So Frenchie set up the sound system for the playground, for Sawyer's, for all these different places. Um, and I, it, I just wish I could give you that, that energy um, in Chicago because whereas you guys speak about clubs in a way, right? A lot of our spaces were just spaces that you rent out. So we had more of a mobile scene where... Um, and, and bragging just a little bit, if I can, right? When you think about um, Paradise Garage, when you think about even the warehouse, that sort of thing, very intentional on the sound system, very intentional on the atmosphere, very intentional on all of that, right? So you can appreciate this as a DJ. You've had that gig where the crowd has already bought in. All you got to do is finish that last piece and play the right records, Right. The crowd is already bought in because the sound system is there. The atmosphere is there. Everybody's ready for it. They're up for it, right? In Chicago, you had to create that in different spaces over and over again. So you got to create it this weekend here, and then you move it to another place and create it that weekend there and all of that. And somehow we were able to do that. We were able to capture that energy and bring it from spot to spot to spot. And, and that thing that that is... One so that's an inertia. That's an inertia itself because you're creating each each week a new thing, every yeah. week a new thing, a new atmosphere, a new Absolutely. setup, a new hangout. And, and these are different promoters as well. So you think about that, and that energy crossed, and a lot of times, not every time, not every time, right? But that energy crossed from a huge ballroom, or a racket club, racquetball club or a restaurant turned club or a loft a vacant loft space turned club or um somebody's basement you know what i mean and that energy went from all of those different parties and it was because of the way that people dressed it was because of the way that the the um language that they spoke the way that they dance, you know, we, we never, we didn't have, we, of course we had a couple of dances that were the dances like the six, three and the reach and that sort of thing where they were structured dances. They had a way that it was done, but for the most part, people just free form dance, you know what I mean? And it was accepted. 
Now you have to have that energy taken from place to place. When you think of body and soul, right? New York, when it was going on in violence and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? That was a, a, a mecca for dancers, but everybody already knew. You know what I mean? We're going to this one place and this is how we get down at this one place. This was for us. It, it, so at one point, almost citywide, you know what I mean? Where kids, if they look this way, if they were dressing this way and they talk this way, you can automatically know what music they listen to automatically off the bat. And that's that to me is how um, focused and, and unified that energy was. And, and man, again, I wish I could give you that feel. <laughs> no, you, but you are you 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 are explaining the feeling for people to understand. But I want something to be clarified. When we say South Side, North Side, Chicago, what was the difference demographically for everyone? You well, know, I, I, I'll say this. Okay, so South Side, um, you were talking about a more middle class African American team, right? Um, there was some central high schools. There was Kenwood High School. There was Whitney Young High School. There was Hyde Park. Kenwood is considered um, the mecca for the house culture um, in the sense that Jesse Saunders went there, Andre Hatchet went there, Celeste Alexander went there. All of these, um, uh, Disco Tony went there. All of these um, personalities, all of these influencers, um, tastemakers um, that were key to the scene. Um, my high school, Mendel High School, Mendel Bilevel, I'm sure you've heard of that um, in the process. There was a party that was given there. Once again, a gym transformed into a club. Um, There was a party that was given there on the weekends. And this was just the Jesuit, the, 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 the priest trying to earn, not earn, raise money, keep school open, right? So they opened it up for these parties. And, you know, it's five dollars to get in and you got a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred kids every weekend. Six grand every time in admissions. <laughs> oh, my God. They're popping it off. Right. Wow. Um, so so that energy again, you know, um, at a high school level, just uh, incredible. And these were black kids, you know, um, it did stretch out into the north side and such. Um, but it wasn't as concentrated. You know, I think that that's the difference. We we were I'm not saying that the North Side wasn't doing their own thing because the Hot Mix Five, that mix show had a lot of um, reach and a lot of influence. But again, we were very focused on Farley and what he played and that energy that he brought. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So we kids listening to Gene Carn was it all it was. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. a deep record for kids to be vibing to. You know what I mean? Um, whereas on the other side of town, um, they may have been listening to records like the Mexican, um, or, um, trying to think of another example of something that was, um, you know, on the radar for us, but wasn't really a a crowd mover for us. You know what I mean? So yeah, those different DJs on the hot mix five were playing differently for their crowds. Um, and, and their influence. But our influence came back right back to Farley. Uh, what he played, we played. Uh, right. So he was, a, he was a trendsetter. He set trends for all of you guys. Oh, my God. I, I don't even think trendsetter is the, is the word. I would say sheep herder. <laughs> oh, fall off the side of the cliff. Watch what Farley does. Because, I mean, I think about records like um, Les Dangerous, Los Niños. 
Farley wore that record out. Now, I don't know how popular Los Niños was for you guys in New York. Was it a huge record? Not like that. Not like Chicago. See, that's what I'm saying. That record could come on and anybody from that era, anybody from that age group, immediately, immediately, it's like playing a Michael Jackson record. Is that popular? You know what I mean? Um, and mm-hmm. then the, the, uh, the accompanying scratches that you were supposed to do when you played that record, you got those from Farley. And the crowd expected to hear those scratches exactly the way that he played it. You know what I mean? Um, so just the, when I say trendsetter influence, incredible amount of influence. Jesus, unbelievable. Hang on one second. I got to play one thing. I got a commercial. I got to play for Sal Carmona. I'm playing. <laughs> now, now we're breaking into commercials now. So <laughs> yes. I'll give you a moment get a glass of water. And I want to let everybody know this Saturday, this Saturday, like we're going back to high school. This Saturday, I am playing... With Jelly Bean, and we just talked about some of Jelly Bean's biggest records and some of them the Mexican. Well, I'm playing for Sal Kimona's The Banger Podcast. Check this out, everybody. Can you believe we're getting actually legitimate now? Check us out. We're back in here. <laughs> we have commercials. I'm you know what's crazy? You said about going for radio, right? So did mm-hmm. I. I went in the end, I went and took engineering classes. Did people know I did take some engineering classes and stuff? And along the way, like you, when we were involved in remixing, we were working alongside some really talented people. And we were probably like you and myself and many others. We were like sponges soaking everything in and then taking it back to the lab. And we're going to go into that now. Um, so 81, 84, 86, 87, you go to do radio, you go to radio. But when you said you took radio uh, education classes, mm-hmm. what did that entail for programming? What part would you have came out and done if you were to go all the way with that? Well, it was actually production. So um, the talk, the class was taught by a producer from one of the big radio stations um, in Chicago at the time. Uh, he produced the morning show. <coughs> Excuse me. No COVID. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> when you cough, people get paranoid. <laughs> everybody, go grab your mask. Wait, wait, wait. Look, look, everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, it was radio production production so it was basically teaching you how to put together a radio show and then teaching you um radio acumen and that sort of thing it was so you would have been involved with like steve harvey show or something like that doing something yeah. like morning show got it okay yeah. so that part so part and parcel to having that education and then moving into the music side wasn't that much different except that you had to learn the technical end of what goes into making music Say. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my case, I was a study of all of that. Um, so early on, you know, records taught me um, song structure and that sort of thing. Like I can, I can remember um, uh, SOS band, take your time, do it right. Being very aware of 
this is the verse. This is the verse B. This is the chorus. Now they're going into the vamp. They use the same music that they use from the intro in the vamp, and then they changed it just slightly. You know, um, <clears throat> just just that sort of be awareness. So even when like um, like Hurley, I was around Hurley in, in in the early years, and he would make a guest tape for for the radio station. I would be very aware of that process. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that that made me very open to learning just the business side, you know, not just hearing the music, but really being aware how the business works, that this record is being played on the radio because somebody promoted it to the radio station. Somebody walked that record in and said, here, this is a great record that has been played at these clubs and such and such and such, and it's getting popular around the city and you should be playing it. And here's the sales report for that record. You know, I was very aware of that type of thing. I don't know why, if it was just a precursor, you know, whatever it was foreshadowing, but I was just very aware of that sort of thing. Um, so you understood the idea of what the radio plugger was involved, the promotion on the backing end of making all of that. The all of that. Not, you know, looking back, I'm just not sure why. It wasn't because it, I had. You know, but what's funny is most, most people will say, I really didn't understand the business. So you're looking at it from listening to what you heard the business first, more so than the creative side. I think I was just a balance of both. I think that that represents me still to this day as I'm always a balance of both. If I wasn't a music producer, I would probably be a, a entertainment lawyer. You know what I mean? I, I would probably be somewhere on the business side just because I've always had a balance of both. Um, and, and even... Um, when I think about my first time in the recording studio, I understood multi-track recording very, very quickly. Um, I, I got it. I got the fact that that there is, you know, uh, the recording session is a monitor section and the busing and the movement of signal flow and all of that. I got that very early. I don't know why. I just did, you know. Um, well, you know what? That's also me that your brain works in that type of in way of linear. It works that way. You're able to, some people, you know, I, I'm not going to mention names. They were never hands-on. They just sat back and they were doing the creative side, but they could never understand what we were doing, touching everything. I wish I was that dude. I wish, you know what I mean? I, I wish I was that dude that, that, you know, was able to flow just on feeling and what feels right and be such of a, um, you know, just uh, usually that type of person is an influencer. Usually that type of person is a tastemaker. They just, they just got good taste. They just know, you know what I mean? It's knowing is right. You know, I, I, I wish I was that intentional about it, but I'm not. I'm, I'm but you know who the danger is, is when you can be the tastemaker and you know how to make it. Yes. That's the danger. That's the danger yeah. of double. You yes, know, absolutely, absolutely. So, so what's the first big record that you become the breakout for you that everybody now knows who you are? Um, there were probably one or two. What's but what's that first one that everybody's like, "Yo, you did that? Yo, that's you." <laughs> you know that you feeling. Know, I, I think more than that, I had a perfect storm. I had a perfect storm of, um, first of all, the record that got me to Hurley's camp was a record called um, Addicted to Bass by MC Crash. Um, it was a hip house record. During that time, hip house was popular. Um, 
and I made the record and then reconnected with Steve. And this was kind of after he uh, come off tour from all of the JM Silk stuff um, and kind of settled down into his production space. Um, and I mean space, not physical space, but space in his career. Um, during that time, so right around the time after he did Roberta Flack, ah, ah, ooh, ooh, and um, he would have probably done the Ten City by then. That's the way love is, and uh, Inner City, good life. So he was kind of open for business in in that sense. Um, and I brought him the record. He was DJing on uh, one of the radio stations, and I brought him the record to play. And that's how we kind of reconnected. Um, and so as I started with his company, kind of as an intern, so I was painting walls, I was dubbing dat tapes. And- wait, 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 wait. Let's clarify that. Tell everybody what intern meant back then. They don't understand oh, that. They think they come and start at the top. They think they're going to champagne. No, I oh, told no. Them, no, tell them, tell them the, what, 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 what the general clause was. There's the closet. This is now your broom. This is your mop. I would love, I would love to hear Hurley's interpretation of this. My interpretation of We're gonna get Hurley one day. I'm gonna call yeah. him up. Make sure oh. I'm gonna ask him. Go ahead. Yeah. I would love to get his interpretation of this, like looking years back. My interpretation is I brought him the record to play. And then he was working at the time in the studio. And I said, Can I stick around? Right. And I went and sat in the back of the studio while he was working. And I was, you know listening, you know, dancing a little bit, taking notes, whatever, right? Just studying, studying his craft, right? And then when he was done, it was probably around, because Hurley used to do banker's hours. He would leave the studio around 10 p.m., right? 8 p.m. The whole time, (laughs) this is hilarious. He probably could be mad because I say this. (laughs) The whole time, his wife would call, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm about to leave, I'm about to leave. (laughs) And then an hour later, she called. I thought you were leaving. Yeah, yeah, I'm about to leave. I'm about to leave. Two hours later, three hours later, four hours later. <laughs> Finally, about 10 o'clock, it was like, look, all right, it's curfew time. I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. But, but that, it, just to detour for just a second, I think that was one of the biggest influences Steve had on me early is he approached music not from a... um flighty artist standpoint, but from a, a very business, I have clients. He used to say the word clients all the time. Um, he worked, you know, defined hours like a job. You know what I mean? He really approached it like a business. And I think that was a huge influence on me because I come from a very traditional family, as I spoke about earlier. Um, and being able to, to reconcile how I saw my father make his living versus how I was looking to make my living. That rock star approach to music wouldn't wouldn't have worked for me. You know what I mean? I, I wouldn't have made that fly at home. Yeah, that would have caused tension in my home life. You know what I mean? Um, what so kind he, of work did your dad do, man, we my, asked? My, my dad was, um, he, he worked for Commonwealth Edison, so the utilities company. Um, oh, all right. So he had a way of office type operation job. Yeah, structure. Well, more on the construction side. So, so mm-hmm. not you know desk and that sort of thing. But, but still a portion of that because he became project manager for the for the company and that sort of thing. So, um, but very. I get up at five o'clock in the morning when you know, and I leave for work, and then I come home in the evening. You know, and then so he had a kind of a, a side 
um, business as well as an electrician. So then he would go do side jobs in the evening. So yeah, waking up at, at four o'clock and then eating lunch and then, I mean, eating breakfast at four o'clock and then finally making it to the studio at nine, 10 o'clock at night and being up all night. Nah. <laughs> Wasn't hearing that. No way. Nah. nah. <laughs> so me seeing Steve um, do it and approach it that way also helped me approach it. And I think that's because Steve came from a similar background where his father was very structured and that sort of thing. So he, he applied okay. a structure sense, to it. Makes sense. Completely makes sense. And, and, and his resulting business was as such too, because, you know, and, and this is no diss to Farley because, you know, got a love for Farley, but we saw Farley in that rock star standpoint. So Farley made records and you saw him with a purple Corvette with his name across on the side of it. You know what I mean? Definitely the rock star approach to it. Whereas Steve made records and he drove a sensible car, but he had a, a $7,000 emulator sampler. You know what I mean? And, and a studio to go to that he was partners in and all that sort of thing. So that, that two different um, influences and both of them viable because there's some people that definitely related to the rock star part and, and emulated that as well and had success with it. So, um, but my, again, again, influence was definitely the more structured part of it. I don't know how we got off on that tangent. <laughs> That's all right. Because no, you're painting the picture of what was going on at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, so you that's how, I, and you that's how I got into Hurley's spot, right. right? So now I'm sitting in the back. And so then I ask him, well, you going to be here tomorrow? Yeah, I'll be here tomorrow, same time. So I would come through, and then I would come through, and then I would do it. And then that eventually um, led to, you know, he's a busy guy. You know what I mean? He's producing. He's got stacks of two inches in the corner, people waiting for him to get to the next thing. You know, he's doing Jamanda and all this stuff, right? And now he's needing an assistant, someone to – okay, can you cut this reel? Someone asked for a TV track. Can you cut the TV track? Yeah. Can you put my parts together? I've already laid the parts. I just need you to edit them together. You know what I mean? Just that sort of thing. Um, and the more I did, the more he trusted me. One of the things that I think he trusted me first with was going to FedEx, right? So remember back in the day, when mixes had to be delivered and record companies would set mastering dates before the mixes were even done, right? <laughs> and, and, and Hurley being Hurley, right? He's right to the edge. He needs somebody to run that tape to FedEx and that tape has to get there. Can't be no mistakes, you know what I mean? And for him to trust me with that, I think that was one of the first things that started me on my way, um, you know, and... and for the, for the kids and stuff. I know no kids are watching this probably. Well, everybody watches Lindy, right? <laughs> Don't worry if they're not. They're going to watch it later again. Don't worry. Yeah, it, it is, hard. right? So but it's but your you don't part. start at the top. You start at going to FedEx. You know what I mean? Um, and, and people trust you with that, and then they trust you with more. So then they trusted me with painting the walls. And then they trusted me with... Um, when I first was officially there, one of my first things was to go pick up Jamie Principal um, and move him into the studio because he was starting uh, an album project or something he was doing. Um, so he was going to live at the studio. Um, so I was sent to go pick up Jamie Principal. Now, Jamie Principal for us since 1982, 83, was this guy from these tapes. <laughs> So you had your love, you had 
Bad Boy. You had Baby Wants to Ride, which were all of these um, deep pseudo Prince type records, right? So I imagine Jamie Principal living in a castle and floating like he would, you know, float to him, right? <laughs> like I would have to go to him and cross a moat and have to say some magic words to get across, whatever. No, Jamie Principal was in a typical Chicago bungalow living in his parents' home on the south side. <laughs> and I drive up <laughs> and see, it is the regular guy, right? Oh, uh, so anyway, so wait, so were you thinking it was like you going to Never Neverland, like with like Michael Jackson lived with the horses? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I thought there were gonna be sorcerers and all types of stuff around. <laughs> and Jamie was just the regular guy. So Jamie loads all his stuff in the car, and then we drive in literal sight. If you know Jamie, you will appreciate this. You got to know Jamie for this. We drive in literal silence. It was probably about a 45-minute, almost hour drive from his house to the studio. That's why probably he was moving in, right? Literal silence. He says not one word to me the whole time. Now, now this guy, when his music comes on, you know, you hear the... You just, like, lose your mind. You've been conditioned to lose your mind. When you hear, you know, I'm just a bad boy, be beat, you know? Condition to lose your mind. Silence. Just All his stuff packed in his car. Like, I'm taking him to college or something. <laughs> Hilarious. But that was one of the things that I did as an intern. Um, and it developed my work ethic. It developed my, um, my knowledge across so many different things. Like, one of the things that I was doing um, at ID was I was handling the publishing catalog. So I would like record the tapes that would be sent out. I would do the duplication and that sort of thing. And that's kind of how we ended up putting the Kim Sims record out is because I was going through publishing tapes and heard these songs and was like, uh, why are these in the basement? Why aren't we doing anything with these, you know? Um, and that was the catalyst for- So what was, wait, wait, what do you mean Kim Sims is stuff in the basement? What was going on there? So as part of Steve's, um, trajectory as a as a producer so if you take it he started out artist went to an artist slash producer um then went to remixer as a result when you interact with the record labels they start asking frank as a manager this is where he was good um he would ask you know who were they looking for songs for so they started building publishing catalog um during that time so Kim came in, she was a friend of Steve's family, I think a friend of Steve's wife or a sister or something like that. Uh, and Kim came in and sang some demos. Um, I think she may have co-wrote on some of the songs, but her purpose was she was a great shingle singer. Um, so she had great pitch, she had great tone, she had a very poppy tone. Um, she was the perfect demo singer. If you wanted something for Diana Ross, she was a great demo singer. Oh, Kim Sims, she'll knock it right out for you. Yeah, she'll knock it right out. So she recorded these demos. Now the demos were sitting. I'm sitting, you know, we were sending them out to record labels, but nobody was biting on them. Um, so when I heard the demos, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is a great song. We need to put this out. And this was around the time of um, Soul to Soul and that sort of thing. Um, uh, what else was the other girl? Lisa Stansfield, that sort of thing. So there were a lot of, 
there were a few down tempo records, you know, great songs. Um, and I heard it was like, hey, this is like right in line with what is being, you know, played right now. We should put this out. Um, and that's a whole nother story. But that that was part of what I was doing as an intern. You day to day, right? Day to day. And at night, at night, that's when the nighttime would come. So I would do all these things during the day. And then at night, I would make these records. I would go in the studio. And because um, I didn't play, I needed a keyboard player. So I um, started with Jerry McAllister. Uh, I don't know if you know Jerry McAllister at all. I Mr. remember that name. I didn't Mr. know. Ali, the Night Riders. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah, him. Oh, definitely. Yeah, but I don't know. Jerry, Jerry was an early artist um, with DJ International as well. Uh, in fact, I think he was like the first album deal with DJ International. Um, and I knew Jerry from growing up from that DJ scene. Jerry was a DJ as well. And, and uh, him and his little brother, Timmy McAllister, and me were best friends in high school. Um, so serious pianist. He's a serious piano player. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, Plus, because Night Rider's record, he's all over that piano playing on that track. Yeah, he used to play. He used, he was one of the first people that I knew had a keyboard himself. Um, he had an insonic um, keyboard, um, and you know he play all those jazz chords and all that stuff. Man, this incredible player. So I brought him in with me as my you know keyboard player slash production partner, and, and really he had way more experience in the studio than I did um, at the time. So, um, and we started working together. So we would work at night. Um, and then I would do all these chores during the day and then come in at night and record. And as a result, um, we finally, we would make these records and then we would play them for them during the day and we would get thumbs down, thumbs down, thumbs down. Uh, so would do, that's what Steve would go like that? He would just go like this? <laughs> no, I mean, imitate Steve. Yeah, imitate Steve, go ahead. I'm exaggerating. Steve would be kind of, um, neutral in it because steve is always the optimist steve is always going to hear a little something and say oh that's great right there but if you tweak this and turn this and whatever and one of the things if you can imagine this as a producer right steve has perfect pitch i didn't know that yeah that that is a very key factor steve has perfect pitch so when you think about music is the key how developed that record was versus um the other early house records um oh yes yeah, big difference light years light years light and years think, always said that that record stood out and in, in, in quality and everything yes and and i think it's the fact that he had perfect pitch that helped that factor um so if you can imagine someone who has no music abilities right and is just going completely off a of vibe right we had a lot of you know uh how can I say it nicely? <laughs> no, say it for what it is. Right a, a, a lot of stuff that was not in key <laughs> put together. That, that yeah, that's it worked. A lot of the house records were. They were a lot of them were a mess. But that was the magic about them. As yeah. messy as they were, they were magical. Yes. So it was a lot of hit and miss. And if you can imagine uh, in the culture of Hurley's production company where you have all of this polish and then we as the up-and-coming producers are now playing our music and it ain't so polished. Um, it was hard to, to stand up from a quality standpoint. So we heard a lot of no's before we heard yeses. Let me just say that. Uh, but, but Frank would be the one to be like, eh, eh, 
<laughs> he, he would not understand that. He didn't understand the dissonance. He, he did not understand dissonant records at all. There was no underground in him. Zero underground. <laughs> so, well, he was looking for was he looking for a pop hit? Is that what he was thinking when you when he's is that? What yeah, you, I, I think I think he was I think he was trying to understand house, but from a pop music perspective. Tough um, way to understand it. Very yeah, tough. Very tough. Very tough. And the reason why he under he wanted to understand that from that director is because from a business perspective. You get a great song, you can get it placed. You get a great artist and a great song, you can get them signed. And, and that's how you move the, the invoices. That's revenue. So he was thinking about it very much from a revenue standpoint. Um, so we would play these, play this music, yada, yada, yada. So finally, um, we would start to land on records that were, um, that had enough legs to do the, to do the whole underground thing. Um, and one of the first ones was, um, Alonda Drake night by night. And we put that out also frustration. So by this, by this time, Maurice Joshua is in under house. Um, M doc is producing records himself. M doc, the rapper, uh, is now producing records himself. So Steve has this kind of sub crew of, of producers, um, that, are working under him, right? And we're getting frustrated. The house is bubbling because we're making all this music, but ain't nothing coming out, right? So um, wisely, we started ID Records um, to help with that music uh, that wasn't coming out. We put the record out um, and Dave German discovered the record and signed it to Columbia. So that was when I first got some how can I say some leverage as a producer at, at ID and I was transitioning from an intern to him. So when you say, what was your first record? That was the first major record. But as a result of that, then now I was allowed to remix um, Cookie Watkins on, on smash uh, and Connie V. I don't know if you remember Connie V from back in the day. Sure, um, she, was, she was the A&R person for that. So Connie V had brought Maurice to ID and there was a result um, she was A&R for Smash Records at the time, which was distributed by Polygram. Um, and Connie V came in and she signed a bunch of stuff. She signed Jamie Principal. She signed M-Doc. Um, JM Silk was supposed to have a revival with, with Smash. Um, so bought in totally. And then we started doing um, Deborah. Uh, was an artist with Smash, so Maurice had produced music for Deborah, and we started doing these remixes. Uh, and and it was at the point too where Steve needed some help on the remixes because back in the day he would have to do all these versions, right? So he would have to do a club version and a dub version, and he had to do an underground version of that club version. And you doing five, six different sets of music on one record, right? It's taking you a week to do remixes. Well, guess what? Them tapes are piling up, brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And, and, you know, this is a 20 grand, 25 grand a pop. It's real money here, right? They ain't waiting two months for their, for their remix, you know? No. So, they so wanted he, it yesterday. They wanted yes. yesterday. And, and they were very clear. They wanted that, that crossover club that could possibly get them radio version from Steve. 
So it was less important for him to do that underground version. So that's where Maurice and I came in and we started doing the remixes. So for me, it was probably the trifecta of um, Clubland, Hold On Tighter, um, Cookie Watkins, um, and that Alondra Drake record that really started me on a, a more national, uh, you know, awareness thing. Obviously, I had smaller records, Chicago um, indie records out um, before then, but that's when people started being aware of me on the Billboard charts and that sort of thing. Woo, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> All right. Then the next part of it would be, where the hell do we get the, the record where you sampled... Um... Little tons are on it because that's in the nineties too. All that you you were making records left, right, and center. I mean, things were going crazy for you. Death Mix yeah, comes so. to knock on your door to come and want to <laughs> take you on. I know, I remember that too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's been a, a career, man. Um, you know, I, I would be remiss in not acknowledging that Mike Hitman Wilson probably gave me my my most solid start, if you will. Um, and, and funny enough, Hitman would have probably been in my place at ID records had him and Frank got along. Um, they, they just couldn't get the business right. Um, and because Hitman wasn't in that position, that's what really allowed me to jump in the spot. Uh, and, and I can't speak for Maurice because Maurice was brought in from a separate path. Um, but definitely for me, Hitman probably would have been in my place. So it, just how things happen is amazing. Um, but yeah, during that time at ID, you know, we did tons of records. We did the Kim Sims, excuse me. We did, um, I discovered Shante Savage there. Um, went on so, to RCA. I remember she went on to RCA. Yeah. You know, uh, and that was one of the other roles that I played at ID is I was kind of an A&R person. Um, I even at one point was trying to bring R. Kelly uh, along and thank God for him. <laughs> I mean, thank God for, for his career. Um, I didn't because he probably got buried in that ID system. Uh, the way, you know, just the way the business worked and such. Um, but yeah, I, you know, brought in Kim Sims, brought in, not brought in, discovered the Kim Sims record, um, brought in Shante Savage um number of other artists you know during that time and we made a bunch of you know did a bunch of remixes for um you know a bunch of superstars and that went great and then um there was a point where there was some tension between frank and steve um and frank was very good about i could do a whole show on his psychology he was very good about the divide and conquer um Frank was sort of like the, the wait a minute, sort of like the way the White House was operating. Yes, Frank was Frank was definitely Trump. Before <laughs> was Trump. Oh my God! If I, if I ever had an introduction to the Trump mentality, it was Frank. <laughs> and and I, and I say this, you know, in the sense that that time I view is almost like going to college. It was a learning experience. I learned so much from Frank just because he was a big mouth. So he would tell all his business, you know what I mean? Uh, I learned so much you know, music business from him in that way. I learned so much um, psychology of the business and dealing with artists and such. Just crazy, just a crazy experience. It was college. That's what exactly what it was, college. But at some point, 
we all realized that um, that our business was not good. At one point, Maurice and I realized that our remixes were getting um, billed to the record label for like, you know, 15, 20 grand. And we were getting paid three grand to do the remixes. And the rest of it was supposedly studio expenses. You know what I mean? And you, you transition from happy to make three grand, because three grand is a lot of money when you're a young guy, right? You're 20 years old, whatever, right? Three grand is like, oh my God, you know, um, to do what you love is incredible. But then after a while, you start getting aware, like, wait, I don't, I'm not sure. At, at some point, I realized it wasn't me that got this remix. We were getting these remixes off of Hurley's name. But as time went on, we had more and more equity in the situation where people were requesting us specifically for the remixes and that sort of thing. So well, it, because the records are being played, the name on the street is becoming quality. You know, yeah. people know your name, not just in Chicago, but uh, everywhere, nationally, like you said, or yeah. internationally. So yeah. now there's a price that comes with that. Absolutely. So the Frank Rodrigo is selling you guys as Cadillacs yes. and giving you Chevrolet pricing. Oh my God. Absolutely. So 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 that was going on. But also I think what brought things to head is when we did a publishing deal with Sony. Um and I believe it was a million dollar publishing deal with Sony. And at that time I had written, uh, we got a love thing for CC Peniston. Um, I had written probably, uh, at least half of Kim Sims album. We had a lot of credits, let's just say going through the, the process. Um, and we got $5,000 advances out of that million dollars. <laughs> so, so that was like, wait, hold on. You just got a million dollar check. And you handed me a five thousand dollar check, <laughs> and, and, and in that list of catalog is you know songs that I wrote. Okay, yeah, that doesn't seem quite right. Somehow, let's break down. Let's break down the percentage. Yeah, let's break down the percentages. Wait, wait, one hundred percent comes into Arrigo. <laughs> you guys yeah. not even got one percent of that. Yeah, not even, not even. So, so that started. How did that, you but, find this out? What, what, where was the who let the cat out of the bag? That's what I I said about Frank having a big mouth. Frank was Frank was very braggy about his business. You know what I mean? In terms of he wanted us to know the successes that we were having. um, But at the same time, um, you know, did not want to share the the riches. And he say something like this. It wasn't for me. We got a million dollars up in here and everybody just stopped. Yeah, I built this mother. I brought a million dollars. What? And and he was good for satisfying, you know, if you wanted to buy a car, Frank had a friend that owned a car lot. So he would make sure that, you know, you bought the car. Now you would use your money. He's not buying the car for you, but he would help facilitate so that your needs and wants were, you know. You want to buy a new keyboard. He would loan you the money to buy the keyboard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he was he was very accommodating for the little stuff. So um just typical. <laughs> so anyway, so we knew about the, the riches and the spoils that were coming in. Uh, 
So, but that wasn't it. I mean, it was such a family atmosphere and a creative atmosphere. Donnell Rush was there. So being able to be uh, exposed to his, you know, just his talent and his vocal expertise. Oh my God. Yes, all of that. So, so from a creative standpoint, there was so much um, energy and trajectory um, that you could ignore the money stuff because you were working anyway. You know what I mean? So it's in the back of your head, but it's not getting you off track. You're still focused on track. Um, at one point, which which Maurice got to the place where he we used to say this word called ganked. He was like, man, I'm getting ganked. <laughs> so um, Maurice had decided he had had enough. He wasn't going to get screwed anymore. Um, and he was preparing his exit. Um, and then that's when he linked back up with Georgie Porgy and Music um, plant was formed at that music point. Plant yeah. formed. Um, also, Maurice had um, a high school friend, Hula Mahone, who had clubhouse records. So Maurice was part of the posse from when they had had This Is Acid and had that success. And they kind of split up. And Maurice, I mean, Hula and Fingers went to Jive and were producers at Jive. Maurice was at ID with us. So Maurice always had one foot kind of over in the clubhouse space. And because um, the way the hooligans down, you know, we're all best friends now. So I, I can appreciate Hula's independence. Um, you know, he was not going to, the way he got down, he was running his own business. Um, so there was always an attraction. There was always stuff going on. The Hula would say, yeah, come down to the studio. Man, I can't. I got to do this remix, such and such. Come, we're in New York right now. Fly to New York. We're doing the such and such. Man, I can't. I got to do this remix right now. So I think Maurice was feeling some of that because um, Frank was very, ID was very, um, how can I say, predatory, very jealous too. Like he didn't want us DJing. He didn't want, he felt like DJing was a step behind, step down from producing. Like um, he didn't understand the Paradise Garage, the warehouse component of DJing. He looked at it as like you're doing wedding reception. You know what I mean? Like not right. You were you just neighborhood guy. You weren't going to be anything yeah. more than that. Yeah, that's and that's the way he looked at DJing. Um, so he he discouraged us from DJing and that sort of thing. And I think just Maurice felt that all his best friends have all this freedom and they're doing all these things, and he's having to toe the line. Me, I was used to toeing the line, so it was less of a intrusion for me. Um, when I really started to feel it was. Um, on Shantae's album deal, he actually came to me and told me he wanted me to lie on the studio invoices um, so that he could keep all of the budget in the recording studio. Um, so I, when he did intrinsically, I knew that was wrong. It's like, wait, no, nah, you want me to say we spent, you know, 12 hours recording the vocal when we spent an hour and a half recording the vocal. You know what I mean? It's, it just was, it just did not feel right. So that's when things started bubbling up for me. The next thing is um, Lynn Cosgrove had called for Ministry of Sound and she wanted me to come over uh, and DJ. And she had been calling through and Frank was blowing off, right? So finally she called, she gets my home number somehow. I don't know how she got my home number. Finally, she finds my home number and calls me at home. Um, says, you know, I've been trying to get in touch with you. I want you to come DJ at Ministry of Science, such, such, such. And um, 
basically Frank didn't want us to, he didn't want us to travel because he didn't want us to get out in the world and find out there's a whole world out here and people love your music and people love what you're doing and you don't have to take this $3,000. You know, you can actually just build the record company directly yourself. You know what I mean? But, um, keep, but keep you attenuated and locked up in a dungeon is a better way. Here, here's what's even crazier. Here's the psychology of it, right? Tell us psychology. Break it down. He starts pitting me against Steve. So Steve is the person who brought me in. Steve is the the um, basically my big brother type influence on me since the early 80s, right? A whole thing. And now he's starting to say, yeah, Steve's falling off his game, but you can have you can have the, the main chair. You know what I mean? Playing those games, right? And, you know, I'm young, but hey, I come from the South Side. I'm a little street. I know a few things here and there. I, I can see where this is going. You know what I mean? So I'm not falling for it, right? Um, but, uh, but I will say this. Now, from New York perspective, we knew Frank Rodrigo was up to bad shit because we were hearing all this going on. The hierarchy mm -hmm. was falling apart in Chicago. And we were saying, because people were talking about Frank's ripping everybody off. This is what the word was exactly. on this side. Frank Rodrigo. And I remember that's how I know his name so well. Frank Rodrigo. You know this guy? I'm like, no. The guy for, oh, Steve's Hurley's manager. I'm like, oh, I know who it is. Boom. He's, he just ripped us off. Boom, 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 boom. Ripping us off. You know, but I, I will say that. What a, definitely what a credibility that ripped me off by Frank Rodrigo. Yeah, definitely ripping us off. But definitely also, you know, man, I'm telling you, I, guy I knew I met from SBK. Um, Joey Carvello, um, Vince Pellegrino. Right. Um, These are heavyweights, all heavyweight guys in the industry in dance music. They got down with Frank. And because they got down with Frank, I was able to observe and stuff. Now, I didn't do, at some point, I was doing some of those functions just because Frank was lazy as hell as well on top of it, right? So at some point, um, you know, I would have some of that record label interaction and I just learned. So, I gotta give it. I gotta give it both sides. I can't just say, "Oh, he was ripping me off." Without no, saying, "No, you get educated." Yeah. I, I educated you. Definitely absolutely. educated. Absolutely, absolutely. So it finally got to the point where I was like, "I gotta go out on my own." And, and and you know who was very instrumental in helping me make that decision was Frankie Knuckles. I remember Frankie being on the phone with me for about two hours one day in the studio, you know, and just kind of talking to him and, and getting, uh, he helped me understand my value, right? So the, again, the psychological thing, you take a, a, a wife that's had domestic abuse and you got this husband that's telling us she doesn't look good and nobody wants us and she ain't got, I had a lot of that baggage from that relationship because, and, I don't even know if it's on purpose. If you remember what I was talking about, you playing your music and you get no, no, no. Then on top of that, you got Steve freaking Hurley <laughs> as, you know, in your company and, and as the bar that you always got to hit, you know? And from that standpoint, it was just always a feeling of being short, not being, you know. Never meeting that, never meeting that mark, right? Yeah, just never meeting never that mark. and never and, like that. And feeling like you, you're also ran. Like, yeah, everybody really is interested in the Hurley mix, but they'll take your mix too. You know what I mean? Um, 
So from that standpoint, just mentally, I don't think I was in a space that I knew I had value outside of that company. And Frankie really helped me. And I think coming from him, because Frankie was also this icon, you know, Frankie was off on the mountain somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, in terms of my Chicago history, if Frankie said that, you know, you have value, then maybe I do have that. You know what I mean? Um, so that's where he was very instrumental in helping me see that I had, you know, yeah, you, go ahead. You, you can do this by yourself. That, that will be work for you after you leave there. Um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's, I remember him always telling you, don't be afraid. Yeah. And, and that's what, what that conversation helped. Um, so then Maurice had left in the middle of the night. <laughs> I helped him move his stuff. Put a caravan of stuff oh, it's out the door. Yeah. So middle of the night, Maurice moves. The next week is all this, you know, slick talk and crazy stuff about suing him and having him beat up. It was all this ridiculousness. It's like, come on, man. This, this is where Frank, the pseudo gangster, comes out, the mafia side, right? Um, and just the whole thing, right? Um, and then probably a week later, two weeks later, I call Steve and I tell him, man, stuff ain't right. I'm talking to you brother to brother, stuff ain't right. Um, and just give him the heads up out of respect that, look, man, I'm out too, you know? Um, no, you know what? I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah, I, I think I got it. I left in the middle of the night, <laughs> got all my stuff out. And then the next morning I called Steve. <laughs> See, that's what that street comes he, he went and got all his stuff out of there before he said to them, I'm terminating my deal. Yeah, that's where the street part comes in again. The, the, the street knowledge. Like, nah, nah, don't, don't tell him and then wait for your stuff to be locked up in there and you can't get back in. Get your stuff and then tell him. And I told him what you were dealing with. Frank Rodrigo with his key with a lock, your padlock. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, call Steve. Like, man, this is what it is. And then shortly after, um, the rest of the group kind of convened and said, yeah, we, we're tired of getting screwed. And did Hurley did, did Hurley realize how toxic things were there yet? Was he, was no. he still under the ID? Because I always wondered about that. Did he really understand the toxicity of what Rodrigo was doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, true. As, as I, when I was promoting um, us being on, I said, I'm going to give all the dirt. And, and true to that, um, if I have to be honest, I did have times where I was wondering, like, is Steve in on this? How, you know, how does he feel about this whole thing? And I think ultimately, as I know Steve, um, you know, just over the years, Steve is a bit of a mad professor in the sense of, um, you know, just very focused on what he's doing and, and, and all of that. And not so much, you know, those nuances can could easily escape him, right? Like I used to, I used to tease him and say he was the richest, he was the brokest rich man I ever knew because he would borrow ten dollars from me to get lunch. You know what I mean? It's because not because he didn't have any money, but because you know this was kind of before the days of cash stations being on every corner and that sort of thing. He just forgot to get cash, so I'm sure he had, you know thousands, hundreds of thousand dollars in the bank, but he forgot the cash. I don't know if you've ever been around that type of millionaire, but 
just kind of like a, like I said, just very focused on what he's doing. You know what I mean? So stuff like that is moving past him, you know? Um, so I think that he was not aware that we were um, all getting ganked. Because he was getting ganked too. You know what I mean? He was just getting lesser ganked. Um, so so from that standpoint, I don't think that he was was fully aware of things. So, so that you mentioned Link, that's it has as clear as it goes. So you go on your own. East yep. Smooth plus become East Smooth. Yeah, I started focusing. And you now travel across the ocean to DJ. Oh yeah, incredible. What was that like? That was your first trip, I presume. Lynn brought you to the ministry, right? Yep. So, well, no. Funny enough, that never transpired. I didn't make it to ministry till probably two years later, um, and then. When I first left, um, I was self-managed and I went through a, a, a series of managers. Um, Craig Coleman was very instrumental and Atlantic was very instrumental in giving me a net when I first left. Um, so he was right there with a bunch of work. Um, I think I did Debbie Gibson and Smarties and a bunch of Atlantic projects like back to back in that process. Um, and I think Johnny D had not made it from sin to Atlantic yet, um, but he was definitely uh, a big. Um, I know he loves your work. He always talked uh, about what you were. That's, that's my he man. That's, that's, that's my man, hundred grand. If, if I didn't think we would fall out immediately, just from a creative standpoint, because me, because you know how um, strong uh, personality Johnny D is, he he'd be my manager because. The way he believes in my work is just. Oh, he, he, oh my God. He's told me himself many times. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and he's true. And in his eyes, you can't do no wrong. Let's put it like that. Yeah. And, and Johnny has no filter as well. So, so <laughs> it's honest, it's real. It's not, you know, it's Woo! not. Yet. Sometimes, like a little too much for everybody's like. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. If it wasn't for that, I'd be like, Johnny, come on, manage me, man. Cause nobody, nobody believes in me like you do. Uh, so, um, just that work started and then, you know, going through managers. And I finally end up with uh, Marcy Weber through, um, I just lost his name. How can I lose his name? MK? Mark Kitchen? No, no. Um, Ramon. Ramon, Ramon Wells. Everybody yeah. that's Ramon Wells. Ramon Wells, yeah. So Ramon Wells brings me to Marcy. Records. Yeah. And this was, this was, um, Death Mix had been kind of courting me. Um, I was still kind of in the legal battle with Frank and Judy didn't want to touch that. Um, so in the meantime, um, you know, Ramon comes along and, you know, fell in love with Marcy. We started working and, you know, um, and, you know, the records started coming like crazy. Um, and then that's what then propelled me to a uh, UK tour and playing Ministry of Sound and all that. So, so it was years later. I, I just could imagine if I would have went when Lynn first called me. You know what I mean? Like, ah. Yes, I totally understand. But sometimes things, and then Rodrigo put a, a wrench in that too. He did. He did. He did. He did. And, you know, when you think about from a DJ standpoint, you start out as a DJ. Because that's where you started. You didn't start out as a producer, right? Me? So, yeah. 
Oh, we all, and with the, let's even take it back to the pause button. We all talk about the same damn pause absolutely, button. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all come from that same era. Pause button. Yes. Eraser yes. with the pencil to revert yeah. the tape back. I mean, it's, it's, let's get it real. Let's That's it. What it is. So, so to be able to get on a plane and go DJ for some people. That, wait, 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 wait. Here's the question everybody asks you. Why do they need you? Do they not have them over there? Right. I mean, even it was hard for me to understand. It was very hard for me to understand. Say equipment, but it's asking me the same question. I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my records are like more crispier than theirs. I don't know. <laughs> so what happened when you got there, when you saw the real world? What happened? Did your eyes open? What happened? I, you know, I, I can tell you, Lenny, I faked the funk a little bit um, and pretending to, 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 know that culture just from years of reading the trade magazines and being very aware of, you know, the Dave Morales the Frankie Knuckles, the CJ McIntoshes, that level of DJing and that sort of thing. But, you know, I was also deer in headlights, you know what I mean? Like, because it's, it is very hard to, um, to translate how can I say it's very hard to translate that energy, right? My DJ reference is, and, and Frank slowed down my DJ in Chicago too. So probably one of my last DJ gigs from, from that time was, uh, you know, from, from that trajectory was playing the crowd, a place called edge of the looking glass. Um, probably a crowd of 800 people. Um, um, it's our party, the, the, the promoters or whatever. I'm part of the promotion group, right? 800 people. And um, I want to say this is probably... But today's standards, 800 people is a huge party. Oh, it's massive. Well, if, if for, Think about that. 800 for, people at a party every week. Yes. For us, it was probably a medium-level party. Right, what I'm saying is at today's yeah, Today? our big parties is two, three thousand people, right? So for us, it was a medium level party, eight hundred people, right? And every record I play, you hear, hey, ah, you know what I mean? Just that type of energy. Just every record is is getting that type of response because I know that crowd. I grew up with that crowd. I can, you know, I'm a tastemaker with that crowd. I know what's hot. I can remember putting on. And this may date it because I was playing it off a of tape, um, uh, eight oh eight state, uh, and, and putting that on, and, and knowing that they had not heard this record, but knowing they would go to this record, and just just the response, that sort of thing, um, and that energy. How do you know that when you travel across the world that, and, and I'm gonna make it a little bit racial too, right? These black kids that I grew up with. That you know, not college age, that sort of thing. They're responding to me because I know them. I've been playing for them since I was 14 years old. I know them, right? I'm over here, ain't a black face in the crowd. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do I know that they're gonna respond to these records that I'm playing in the same way? So I'm trusting charts, I'm trusting, I'm trusting what's supposed to be hot, but I ain't never witnessed it being high you know what i mean just that sort of thing and, and playing totally off the instinct so when i say i was faking the funk you know part of it was 
playing from an assimilation standpoint, and part of it was playing from my pure DJ instincts. So you first get there and you play? Was it great or horrible? It was both. I'm going to tell you why. Tell us why. So you know how it is when you land, people are handing you records, handing you records, handing you acetates, handing you all this stuff, right? And I'm listening to it from a, you know, from my pure ear, just like, yeah, this is hot. This Because I am very finicky. There's, there's a lot of records that people play that I don't play just because if I don't feel it, if I don't like it, I don't play it. Really simple, right? Um, so I'm listening and I'm grabbing this record. I'm grabbing that record. I'm playing what I think they want to hear from my catalog, you know, remixes and that sort of thing. Um, but I played at Ministry a David Morales remix of Michael Jackson something other. It wasn't even a hot, a hot Michael Jackson record. As you can imagine, that record was way too commercial for that crowd. But I thought because of reading the trades and the charts and all of that stuff, that's what you're supposed to play. You know what I mean? So that's what I mean by it had some very hot moments where I was playing stuff that was unreleased that they had never heard and it was great. And then they had moments like that where I'm playing something so commercial and cheesy that, you know, no offense to Morales, but he probably wasn't even playing that record. You know what I mean? Right, um, that mix was made for basically for a radio thing, was never meant for being a club scene. Was was or, or, or way on the commercial side of the club scene, not on, not Ministry of Sound club scene. So, so that's where it was great and it was terrible at the same time. You know what I mean? Um, but quickly I got acclimated and, and understood and the subsequent gigs, I got into my, my proper space. And loved it. Beat them down. Oh my God. I, you know, when I was touring, oh my God, loved touring, loved, loved, loved finding out that on the other side of the world, people were doing it in the same way that you were doing it. I played this, um, party called Freakazoid in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, my God. Let's give them a shout out. All the Australians. That was at Chevron Absolutely. in Melbourne. That's right. 91, Marlon, Peter and the group. All in, all in the silver, all those yeah. fellas. Absolutely. Absolutely. But when I got there, I felt like I had found my people from 1982. Like, they, they really understood um the energy and the vibe and they they got it you know what i mean and the crowd got it and it was that type of gig where you could do no wrong you could you couldn't play the wrong record you know what i mean um and their love for my music made it even um even better uh, so so those are definitely my peoples <laughs> down under um but okay. i but I experienced that all over the world. I experienced that in Israel. I experienced that in Greece. I experienced that uh, in Turkey. I experienced that all over the world, you know? All the success we know, of course, everybody that followed you for a long time knows that. But all of a sudden, like all of us had moments of grandeur and moments like they, like Quincy said, valley, peaks and valleys. Yes. What was the valley moment? Oh my god, I've had so many valleys. Oh, the valley that made you step away. Well, I'll lead up to that. Um, yeah, you take us on that one. One, one of one of my valleys, one of my valleys from a DJ perspective was 
for some reason, man, that plane ride, I don't know if you can relate to this, the plane ride. So the concept of when you're traveling every weekend and that sort of thing, um, at first, it's amazing, right? Your passport is going crazy. You know, you stamp, 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 get to the point where um, you're doing all this preparation before you go. And then I stop, and then it starts to get to the point where it's more matter of fact. So at any point on a Thursday, you know, by one o'clock afternoon, I would stop what I was doing and make my way to the airport. So that's how matter of fact it would be. Uh, all that preparation started slowing down in terms of getting your things in order before you leave the country, right? Um, and then it started to become, I don't know, just like a job, man. Like I would love the part once I land, once I get there and I play and you play for two hours, whatever. And then you get back on a plane and fly for 10 hours. And I started longing for, man, can I have a, a, a I'd like that experience, but I would love a shorter commute. You know what I mean? And then I started getting this anxiety when I was on the plane. That was crazy. So like, literally, I would feel like I got to get, I got to like peel the top off. I got to jump out this window because I would have ideas um, that would come to me and I couldn't act on them because I'm stuck on this plane for eight hours. I know it sounds ridiculous, but at the time it was a very real thing. Um, and no, I can't stand. And, and, and so it just beca I became less and less grateful about the experience is what it was. And I think that in that process of being less and less grateful, here comes EDM. Um, and, and now the gigs start to become fewer and far between. Um, and, you know, that process, man, my lesson is that, is that I think that I tie that to my gratitude, right? Because clearly there were people that continued working through the EDM phase and all of that stuff. Um, so also what happened was the label work started to change. Um, so, you know, there was a time where you could sign a single for a hundred grand, 150 grand, you know what I mean? There were times where you, sneeze on a record and somebody would be there to license it for 20, 30 grand. All of that stuff started to slow down because of the download culture and all of that, right? So all of this is converging. And then um, also, um, Latanza tells me she's pregnant. <laughs> and so now I'm having my first kid. And instead of me looking at it and saying, here, you've had this long history in the music business where you've been successful and you've made more money than you could ever dream and all of that. And trusting that that would come, I started looking at like, wait, I'm having a kid. I got to get something steady here. I can't have this flighty music business career going on. Right. So I decide, yeah, let me make sure I'm being honest and forthcoming with that. Also, I felt like I was having less to say musically. Like, I felt like I had said it all. Like, it, it got to the point where I felt like my record wasn't anything special from the next person's record. You know, I'm just throwing another record on the pile. You know what I mean? Um, so all of that came together in kind of a perfect storm that said, you should go into real estate investment. <laughs> and so then I digress from music and started focusing more on um, 
invested in real estate and, and all that sort of thing. And that's what pulled me out. But um, in terms of valleys um, throughout even my production career, um, I left uh, MCT, Marcy, um, in 90, the end of 95, right? Um, and it's so funny. Marcy was pushing me to, to do more of an electronic sound, right? Her company was getting more um, entrenched in that in that space. She had Moby at the time. She had MK. She had Philip Damien. She had myself or whatever. And she was kind of steering me more into a more, um, uh, how can I say it? I mean, because it was all electronic music, of course, right? More of a more of a techno sound, if you will, right? She was trying to steer me more into that, right? And I was resistant to that because I had such a, a soul background, right? And I felt like as much as I loved Marcy, especially loved the business part, I felt like she didn't get the underground DJ part of me as much, right? Um, so here comes Judy. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and you know Judy's history for the record, you know, Frankie or Alice, whatever. Judy's telling me, oh, I could have you in running two, three studios at one time. There's so much demand for you work-wise. You do the R&B thing, which Morales and Frankie don't do, you know, as well. You're more competent. You can deliver both mixes, the house mix and the um and the R&B mix. Um, and I had done that for like Deborah Cox and Adina Howard and a lot of different artists where I started getting to the point where they would hire me for the house mix, but they also hired me to do an alternative R&B mix as well. Um, so I felt like, I felt like Judy could appreciate my soul different than Marcy could. Um, and just, you know how it is as an artist, you get in your head and the whole thing. Somebody, somebody gets in your head and I make the move to death, death mix. And, you know, my apologies to Marcy because it's one of the low points in my life. I feel like I did that move wrong. Even if I did the move, I could have done it properly. I did it wrong. So she finds out I'm on the cover of Hitmakers in a group photo <laughs> with Death Mix. Like, you know, new to Death Mix, here's he smooth. Like, yeah, that wasn't the right way to do that. You know, so my apologies to her. Um, I've apologized to her since, but publicly I'm apologizing that that wasn't the, that was a valley Lenny. that was a valley <laughs> um it happens it's just a moment those things happen that time yeah, yeah. So, so so i'm there with death mix you know at the, the mecca of dance music right and guess what tumbleweeds i go a whole freaking year and i probably went from doing two to three projects a week you know, two, three mixes a week to two to three in that whole year, that whole year. So, um, you know, a lot of theories about what happened. You know, my darker side says, ah, they brought me in to get me out of the way. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that a little bit of that is true, maybe. I don't know. The other side is that the industry was changing completely. The, you know, the A&R people were changing. Um, the value in the remix, um, 
was changing. It was, you know, it was spec city during that year where everybody was, you know, and then trying to get their name out. Yeah. You know, Frank, Frank Cirillo, no diss to Frank. We love Frank would hire one or two key, key people and then put eight other billboard reporters on, you know, yep. Don't let them to do his respect. So now, you know, that's the man, you know, um, the sound was changing. So things were getting a lot harder during that time. Um, just all of that. And the irony is Marcy, Marcy was pushing me towards a little bit of that harder sound. And then I ended up doing that whole thick dick thing. And I was doing it anyway. Like you big dummy. She was telling you where you needed to be before you needed to be there. And you ended up there anyway. You should have just did what she said. <laughs> That's what happens though. You know, you, you uh, you're like you said, you're living in it. You're not seeing it from an, you're seeing it from a bipartisan standpoint now. Yeah. And when you're inside, you're an incumbent. And when yeah. you're an incumbent, you know how it works. You can't see past what's right in front of you. You're in the goal. So, it is so much going on. I mean, when you think about just the, the, the concept of prolific artists like Stevie Wonder for Prince or whatever, we think about the number of albums that they've had in their career. And they're prolific. They are, you know, Groundbreaking each and every one. Spitting it out, spitting it out. I'm doing three mixes a week. And when I'm doing those mixes, I'm not just doing one version. I'm doing a harder version to appeal to these DJs. And then a more um, to my roots version to appeal to these DJs. And maybe another version that's trying to make it to radio because this is an artist and A&R person who doesn't even understand underground music. They just know their name is at the top of the charts, you know? Let Let me clarify this for everybody. So when the guy says, the A&R guy goes, look, I know, you know, we need one for Junior Vasquez and we need one for, you know, Frankie and that, that underground house, but we need the seven inch version. Seven inch version. Got killer. Yes. Seven inch versions, that little 45 radio edit, right? That no. was two and a half minutes. That they want that mix to be so hot so they can get, you know, radio. That was what wanted to be, and they wanted to be everything. They wanted to be, they wanted to be so DJ crazy that it's peak hour at the same time. They wanted to be friendly to the artists. At the same time, they wanted to be friendly to the radio programmers. Just everything has to be in this three and a half minute version. Talk about madness. That is not the way to make music. That is the opposite of way, man. And they wanted to sound like your la- your last hot record, too. Yeah, why don't it sound like what you, what you did for that person? Oh, my God. <laughs> I asked you to mix you the way you did Shante Savage. Why am I not hearing that on my- but you why, said why I'm not not hearing Shante Savage on this little white girl who can barely right. sing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, recall, 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 recall. But in the time, you know, we did have some good records. So I can't. I don't oh, know. dude, you have a lot of. What are you talking about? You had a lot of <laughs> records to testify testify yeah. with, and you if you never came back, nobody's ever going to forget what you've done. I appreciate that, man. You know. So now here we are. Yeah. Why the hell did you step back and why do I see a microphone, speakers and stuff? What's going on now? Oh yeah, that's always been there. So No, no, so, no, no, no. What? No, you're getting serious now. There's a difference. Yeah. It's, it's definitely have always been there. But now yeah, tell me yeah. why I say that because you've called us amongst the years to check in with everybody. Yeah. We would say to you, what's where are you? Well, yeah. I'm look just checking like like the landscape. Like you're looking around to see what's going on. <laughs> You know, you know what it is, man. It, 
it's crazy to the business. Um, when you look at it and you say, I used to make a living at this, you know what I mean? And now we're down to, if you got 400 downloads on TrackSource, it's a hit, you know what I mean? Like it's a different business. Um, so in terms of creatively and ability wise, you know, even some, since the subliminal stuff, um, you know, I've always been messing around, so to speak. Um, but finally, I got to the place where, I, you know, maybe it's ego. Maybe it's like, man, y'all going crazy over this record. I got 10 of those records. You know what I mean? Maybe it's ego. It just made me say creatively, I want to get back in the game and I don't care what the business looks like. Um, so I'm, 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 what's I'm, funny is. Let me clarify this to you now. You're going to go full circle. When you stepped up to Hurley, you didn't give a shit what the business was back then. Did not. Did not care and about that's the now. success always happens. I tell everybody, the minute the money starts, you, 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 the, what you came in doesn't hold anymore. You lose yeah. that feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I'm, I'm making records with people that I love, artists that I love. Um, so I got stuff coming up with Barbara Tucker. I got a Jay Williams record he just sent me. Um, it's just amazing. Um, I've got something in the works with Roland Clark, with Kenny Bobian, uh, Ryan Carroll, uh, Latanza Waters, of course, Andre Love. Andre Love, with um, we did the Praise Cat stuff with. Um, we got records, man. We got records. <laughs> in, in various forms of development, but we got records. All right. Sounds like a threat. Sounds like a great threat, though. I love it. I love hearing that. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. But, man, we did not talk about the subliminal years, man. That was some crazy times. Well, I was going to ask you, just I was going to ask you, what were you shocked when you heard about Eric dying? Oh, man, I'm so sad. I mean, you know, I ran across this picture, of course, and, you know, social media and even on my phone. Uh, and it just makes me sad. I wish I could. I had communication with him prior. Um, but I was also keeping my distance in the sense that when you're going through a, a, a legal issue like that, um, you know, if it's not in the front of your mind, you don't want somebody putting it on the front of your mind. Um, and then you don't want to, you know, I just sent him some words and he received those words. But if I had known that it was at that point to him, I would have had some very different words for him. Um, you know, just, it, it, I just feel like um, without mincing words, he could have gotten the help he needed if he needed it. He could have had his day in court and there could have been a life after this. He did not have to, to die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, everybody yeah. feels when they're in that position, forget about what's going on with the court case. But when you're doing the drugs, you're not realizing how much you're taking. Mm -hmm. you're high or whatever you're doing you do more and more and more and sometimes you think you have control but for those that are no longer with us have proven that that's not the case yeah. you know yeah it's very unfortunate you know especially because you know he supposedly got into a place where he was sober and and all of that and just you know i just he didn't have to go so in a crash course, before we make everybody, because everybody's getting sad, they're all sending yeah, yeah. the same couple of the same. Can't wait to hear your records, of course. Can you sum up your your life with Subliminal? You said I didn't ask you. I want. I forgot about that. I totally forgot about the Praise Cats, and I played that record recently. <laughs> that record, that gospel thing. 
subliminal was was like so if i look at my career right i had the id time then i had the focus time you know with with marcy and such then with the deaf mix and things went down and then i came back from an underground stance and relaunched relaunched focus records and i had uh lift your hands up and all this stuff and then i had another trajectory with um uh sergio and uh deborah who were managing me under pitch control and um you know had huge success with with those remixes and, and did a bunch of different remixes during that time like um kelly's and, and all of those records right so i had an, another run there right and then um boy see this is where the old comes in i think i'm reversing the order everybody go back to get jared tall send smooth jared donation yeah. Reversing the order. Um, so I have, I put out when I was doing my underground thing after the death mix thing, right? I put out the Thick Dick record. Um, and Eric calls me up and says, I want your Thick Dick. <laughs> and I'm like, What? What's wrong with you? What's fucking wrong with this guy? And then he licensed the Thick Dick record. Um, and then a whole trajectory begins, and it's like drinking from a, 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 a fire hydrant. That brand was so big um, that along with my history and all of that, um, man, it just, together, you know, he was signing my records like left and right. I, I'd make the record and intend on putting it out myself because along with the, um, the Thick Dick deal, we did a label deal. I did a label deal for myself and I did a label deal for Latanza. Praise uh, Cats was due to come out on Latanza's label. Before we could even get it out, he's licensing. Um, and, and that went on like crazy for, you know, for a period of time. And, you know, as a result, touring was crazy. Just all of that, just being attached to that brand. I mean, that brand was just so massive um, that, you know, it just gave a lot of trajectory. Um, and, I, and I'm very appreciative of that. Well, first of all, let's be clear. You and Latanza are actually, actually very talented. Let's not forget that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, that's back to my material. History. You're giving yeah. great material to yeah. situation, a machine. Like Motown. If it's Motown, here you come. Boom, your, your tracks. And they fit right into what's going on. And, you know, I think you don't that an underlying factor of my career is I've never fully allowed myself to appreciate that people appreciate my music. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, how can done, you? You can't. You're the creator. You never would. Do. How could you appreciate what you do? But, yourself? Well, what I've learned is there's, a, there's actually a term for it in the entertainment business called imposter uh, syndrome. That you think that people and supposedly Michael Jackson had it, Beyonce has it, yada, 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 that you think people are going to discover that, yeah, you're not really that talented. <laughs> that everybody's going to wake up one day and say, yeah, actually your stuff is crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it is called imposter syndrome. It's the thing, and I very much have that. And I think it comes back from my history of thumbs down. You know what I mean? <laughs> Rodrigo, back to Rodrigo. It's <laughs> always back to that. that it always comes back to that, man. Hey, <laughs> you know what? If you thought everything you did was great, I would say you're lying. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's that's what all of us. I can't think everything I do is the man, great. I got some dogs. 
I mean, so do we all? We got thank you, all thank you dogs. <laughs> it's so bad. The dog is dead. That's how <laughs> right. Thank it. Dog is dead. Thank you, so, thank you, dogs. Oh. So now, do we have a new record label name? Was you going with Focus again? What's today? Uh, Tell the, me what the, the now. new record label is Super Fresh Recordings, um, and the name is um, a tongue-in-cheek look back at like that convergence of when Chicago house culture was going on, but there was a little bit of hip hop culture influence. Um, so, like the, the logo has graffiti. Um, you know, like a tag from back in the day. Um, and just the super fresh is, you know, hip hop language, so to speak. Funky fresh, funky fresh tracks. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's circa ni- 1981 when I feel like that's when I really came in the yeah, the, the whole D train era for yeah. all of us. Yes, absolutely. Super funk, super funk. No, super fresh. Recording. Super fresh. Sorry, super funk. Yeah. Super fresh because funk is a whole different. He's got yeah. the funk. It's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing I always tell people about house music, it has made all of us like family. Yeah, absolutely. No matter how much we may be at war at times, like every family, we yeah. all have a amongst a tremendous amount of love for everybody, all of us that are in this game. And yeah, still you know, today to talk about it. I mean, when you think about it, you know, um, those uh, Miami um, Winter Music Conferences is a perfect example of everybody converged together. And back in the day, it just, you know, all those names that you saw in the magazine, all those names that you hear on the phone call, all those names that you see on the record, all those different people uh, from the promotions people to the record label people to the DJs to the producers, all of that. It just everybody just on one kind of accord, you know what I mean? Um, so when you hear some of those those old names from back in the day, it does feel like family. It's like, geez, I haven't talked to them in ages, but you no, know, saw them, but didn't even talk to them. I know, yeah, you know, it's crazy, you know, and and even that, like my relationship with with Eric with Murillo, um, when I first met him. He was like an intern for Louie and them, you know what I mean? And, and those guys, like, I can remember jumping in his car and him driving Louie around like I would have probably drive, drove Steve around, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I Gotta felt start like, somewhere. Gotta start somewhere. So I felt like we grew up together, you know what I mean? Um, just, just all of that. You know, when I first met um, Louie, you know, just right on, straight on, you know? Um, just just that type of relationship with people and your common bond is the music, you know? Right. God bless, man. But we, we expect to hear a load of stuff from you now. I know you're serious about it. <laughs> I know somebody mentioned to me they're managing you or something or helping you out in England. Steve um, uh, said he was taking care of some stuff for you. Oh, um, Steve from Concrete. Stimpy. Steve, yes, Step. The Stimpy. Yeah. Stimpy's yeah. up with you? You got Stimpy working with you? Um, not loosely, uh, without any embarrassment on, on his part. Um, he was looking to help me with promotion and stuff. And I don't know how you deal with your label um, in terms of balancing your creative with the business side. Um, I was struggling a little bit in, in terms of the business side, just because I have a whole other business that I run outside of the music. Sure. You know? 
um, and just balancing that time. Um, I need to help. Um, so I was a little slow to the, slow to the game. Um, so I actually have Joe B, um, who used to be with King street. And yep, Joe Bernardo, everybody, yep. Joe Bernardo. So, so he is, um, actually with my label manager. Now I needed the label manager is what I needed. <laughs> um, so now that that is in order, he's getting me in shape and making sure I, you know, uh, stay strict on my release schedule and all of that. So. Oh, man, but, but definitely, but definitely we'll be using concrete for some promo stuff. Congratulations, East Smooth. Welcome back home, baby. We missed you. I can't wait for those records to get out and people just to hear, you know, what we're doing. What, what they do, whatever. But I just want to continue. Yeah, don't worry about Don't worry about what they do. Just do your do. Yeah, make absolutely. Smooth make you move. That's all we want. East Smooth, <laughs> make you move, baby. Man, that's some history right there. <laughs> I have to thank you, East Smooth. It's been a, and we covered a lot in those two hours. Like I told you, you're gonna cover it all, and you did. We, you did seven. we didn't talk about the Grammy nominations. We didn't talk about oh my god, you know my relationship with Morris Joshua. Oh, those are those list. are separate things. But we, I did forget to mention you were Grammy nominated. Which record again was it? Uh, two, two actually Grammy nominations. One with um, Atlantic with uh, Sunshine Anderson. Heard it all before. And the other one with Tommy Boy with uh, Bob Sinclair, uh, we're on hold on. Oh, that's right. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. Yes, and I think it was what's his name wanted. Um, that trans guy. <laughs> yeah, that trans guy wanted all those years. Every year, <laughs> that was like, the trans yeah. guy. Every year, I was like, yo, what happened? You know, even I'm gonna be honest now, and I have the forum to do it. And True House Stories is gonna say it. So yeah. we saw the top 100 DJs. Yes, we didn't talk about that, man. <laughs> Did you see that? No. Oh, my God. You know. You look, at, you look at the top 100 DJs. I'm not going to be play-hating, but I'm going to play-hate. I'm not jealous, but I'm going to call it for what it is. It's a sham. It is a sham. It's a complete sham. <laughs> and say that I wrote, Lenny said it's a sham. But it's even, if it, Lenny, even if it's not a sham, it's no, still a sham. Meaning, meaning, like, even if it's not... Um, doctored, uh, even if it's, it's genuine and organic, it still is a sham in the sense that when you look at that list, and yeah, it's probably slightly, just a hint more diversified than it's been in past years. Yeah. It's possible. In the top 100 DJs, the top 100 DJs, you cannot find one person of color. In the that top is true. Now, that's a thing. Now, 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 I will say, I will say, Carl Cox has been there representing. But that's all you can find is freaking Carl Cox in the top 100 DJs of uh, uh art form that was started for us. Yeah, come on. Come I know. Come on. Well, you know, when you play black music, that's the way it goes. Yeah, so I'm it, part of that. I'm part of that gang too. Yeah, I, I mean, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. But, yo, but, I remember when people said to me, yo, man, your stuff's too soulful. <laughs> I was like, what? You, you remember those days when you brought, like, projects you believed in, and you're like, I didn't know how to take it. What do you mean soulful? No, I can remember being in Spain, man. <laughs> this is a funny story. And I'm playing, because I know this is a Thick Dick gig, right? I know I got, got booked for Thick Dick. And I'm playing Thick Dick, and I'm probably playing at about 134 BPM, right? 134, that's fast. 
<laughs> you, you almost have no soul in 134. You, yeah, you're pretty close to, you're not feeling the records. It's just, just pulsating at that point. It's just <laughs> and I had people in front of me saying, faster, faster, take it up. Like, what? <laughs> what's this? They're going yes. like this. It's like, oh, wait, should I give you my record? At that moment, I felt like the I felt like the devil was sitting on the turntable saying, "Sell your soul to me. <laughs> Sell your soul to me, <laughs> and I'll make you whole and wonderful, gracious, big and strong." Oh my God! Bob Dylan said it. One day you'll have to pay the piper. Yes. So true. If you do that, it is so true. It is. It is. Damn, te. Went deep on us, boy. You went real deep. Hey, man, I saw. I said I was gonna get real, man. <laughs> you couldn't even get. It's documented. It's real. People, have, I'm telling you, all going. This is one of the best they've ever heard people talk on these shows. Some people, I get, they're afraid to go and open up. They're afraid, like somebody's gonna come and knock on their door, like Secret Service or something. <laughs> <laughs> but at least with you, you've been on top, been down, like Frank Sinatra said, up and down and all around. Absolutely. So you understand success. You understand, oh, my God, I don't believe it's over. And here I am again to tell you all about it all over again. You know, no, that's the truth. Man. That's oh, the truth. man, if I had a hat on, I'd take it off to you. I got to thank you. E. Where's the SSL? I got a question for you, lady, before we go. Is that is that a chocolate sensation SSL or did the SSL exist before chocolate sensation? There it is. Um, when did I mix that? I mixed that at bass hit that time. No, no, not when you mixed it. I'm saying. Oh, you mean when I got the oh when, when I made got, the purchase of the SSL? Stop playing. Oh, when, yeah. I, when I did Powerhouse. Ah, yeah. yeah. Right? My whole life changed. That's like everybody else is like, and then then the industry changed, mm-hmm. and then we didn't need that anymore. Isn't that crazy? We didn't even get to no. talk about the technical stuff. I'm all yeah, in the box. We, all in the box. <laughs> yeah, that's another whole different world. I mean, we used to joke about it, and you can relate to this. We used to say, imagine all this stuff was in the computer. Now, I know yeah. you said it because I said it. Man, so all recalls. Recalls. Oh, <laughs> my God. Just the recalls with three hours in the night putting everything together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And now it's like, file open. And you're right back where you left off 20 years ago, within seconds. It's like, why did I have this when we were in the middle of doing all these remixes back then? Right, right. And flip-flop, and you couldn't, people understand, you couldn't flip-flop because the board was set up. You wouldn't want to put... Oh, my God. I used to hate when people, when A&R people would say, yeah, could you bring it up and change it? Man, I've done two two mixes by now. The board has flipped twice since the last time. Yeah, you know what I'm going to do now? Well, I knew a couple people doing they, they they would do is they would do passes of the sections, and then yeah. if they had a recall, they just bring them up and go. Yeah. And I was, not, I was not that I was not that sophisticated. You weren't sophisticated like all of us. Man, you know when one of my first experiences this was being in a masters of work session. Um, this had to be like circa nineteen ninety three, right after I left ID. And I looked around in that session, and this is no diss to Lou and Kenny, right? I looked around in that session, and there was so many people in that session doing stuff. I was like, wait, I do that job? 
I do that job. But there was somebody to there was somebody to press play on the tape. There yeah. was somebody, they had an assistant of an assistant of the assistant. It was crazy. And I'm like, this ain't the way we make records in Chicago, man. Yeah, well, that was New York style, man. Everybody had, had the engineer, the assistant to the engineer, the keyboard player, the keyboard programmer. It was like yes. five seven people in the room to make a record. Absolutely. Now <laughs> it's you, yourself, and I. Yes, absolutely. Well, I got to give credit. I got some great musicians that I worked with over the years. Danny Weatherspoon, Jeremy Callister, uh, Ron Hall, Keith Henderson, Tim Gant. I mean, just been blessed to to have some incredible musician and artists um, to work with over the years that, that helped that sound come along. It ain't just me, but it's just me. <laughs> you're the one, you're like, you're like the Wizard of Oz. You pulling the levers, keeping everything going. You get all them colors in, in, in the mix, now you got to turn it into a paint. You see, you make it technical at the end. You give us that ending. all righty thank you very much thank you everyone for tuning in to hear east smooth and it was absolutely even better than i could ever expect it i never expected you to go and rip that lid open and tell us deep stories like that incredible true house stories that's right baby true this is what it is true house stories next week you know where to come Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And come back, come back, because every week we have tremendous, excellent stories with people that really make the difference. And all of you that support us to help you smooth. When his records keep knocking his door, say, yo, when's that record coming out? Now bother him every week. Bother him. Call him and say, yo, where's that record? Yo, they're gonna hold you to it. He watched. He would have be like, I heard you on the show. What where's the record, man? Because the business side will make you want to quit and just send everybody the record and say, look, man, go to this website and download. You can have it for free. <laughs> the business side will drive you nuts right now. I know, but good luck on the real estate. And I know it's a tough time. To- oh, one last question. How are you making out with the pandemic? How are you? How's everything going? Oh, man, you know, so many people have been hurt by this thing, man. I've, I've personally been blessed. None of our family members, um, close family members have been, you know, um, infected. So that's the first thing. And then financially, man, we've thrived through this whole thing. So we've been, we've been blessed. Business keeps rolling. So God bless um, you. We try and help whoever we can along the way and, and, and hope that, you know, this thing gets, uh, you know, beat as Joe Biden says, we're going to beat it. You know, I man, I'm Biden all the way, baby. And yeah. congratulations to the African community for our first VP, Absolutely. woman, a biracial, yes, but make, like it stride, like <laughs> make it strides. Yeah. Who's on next week, Lenny? I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. I didn't take my prevision. Karen's going to scream me in a second. Here it goes. Ready? Can someone tell me? I got to look at the calendar now because I can't. I had, I had Randy Muller who canceled on me. I've had. Oh my God. And I can't think who the hell's next week. Let me go look. Karen, where the hell? She's telling me Tyree Cooper in the house. Tyree Cooper. Yes. Oh my God. See? Tyree Cooper says. I needed seven hours, Lenny. I needed seven hours. You need 10 hours, E. You don't have enough time. My man, man, Tyree. Chicago's in the house. All the Chicago people coming in, banging, screaming at you. You just can't hear them. 
<laughs> hey, man, Chicago, uh, you know, I used to travel around the world, DJing, of course, touring or whatever. And no matter where I was, somebody from Chicago was either there, had just left or on their way in. So now Karen just corrected me. And this is an amazing next week. Yeah. So now we went from house Chicago. We're yeah. going into disco. Now we're going to hit up. Ready for this? The best disco in town. Everybody. Uh, funky sound. It's a place that then in a way. Hey, hey. The Richie family. Oh, Richie man. Family. Check that out. <laughs> <laughs> next week. Like Richie family. What you doing to me? Yes. I just wish Jocks Morale was alive. I'll get him on the show too, but but we got the Richie family and oh, God man. bless us. Everybody, Richie family's on next week. Please tune in again. They're gonna be incredible. Their story is the beginning of the disco era, for God's sake. Incredible.